the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show and day two of the trial of the century, to the extent it's living up to that billing. Uh, Want to go? Uh, by the way, follow us danproftshow.com, danproftshow.com, Twitter at danproft and at danproftshow. And I want to just uh, pull back some of uh, the key takeaways that I think framed already framed the oral arguments that we're still witnessing from both the House managers as well as the Trumps, uh, as well as Trump's defense team, uh, from Jay Sekulow and Pat Cipollone, sort of framed the. Uh, the arguments and uh, provide the basis through which we should look at uh, the proceedings before we move beyond oral arguments into the Senate questioning uh, of the respective parties. Jay Sekulow on uh, the Admiral Stockdale question. Why am why are we here? Why are we here? Are we here because of a phone call? Or are we here before this great body? Because since the president was sworn into office, there was a desire to see him removed. Yeah, as so memorialized 20 minutes after his impeachment by the Washington Post, the uh, the case or the, uh, the the campaign to remove the president begins in earnest 20 minutes after he's impeached. Pat Cipollone, White House counsel, also addressed straight away again. This argument that you have been hearing for months in the press, you heard from Schiff and Nadler and others yesterday. You will continue to hear throughout the duration of this proceeding that the debate is over. You know, the left is always interested in ending debates, not having them. The debate is over. The uh, case, the evidence uh, presented by the House is overwhelming. And so now we just should quickly move to the punishment phase of the proceeding. Overwhelming evidence to impeach the president of the United States. And then they come here on the first day and they say, you know what, we need some more evidence. Now let me tell you something. If I showed up in any court in this country and I said, judge, my case is overwhelming, but I'm not ready to go yet. I need more evidence before I can make my case. I would get thrown out in two seconds. And that's exactly what should happen here. That's exactly what should happen here. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by David Marcus, who is New York correspondent for The Federalist, contributor to the New York Times, New York Post, and City Journal. David, thanks for joining us at The Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, you have uh, talked about this, and, and you provide uh, some context on yourself. As uh, many of your avid readers know, you didn't start out as a particular Trump fan. But as it pertains to this impeachment, uh, you have written one of the more pointed pieces I've read about what Senate Republicans must do to, uh, well, deliver a reckoning to uh, 
Democrats on the Hill who have brought us to this place. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I got to say, I, I love my job. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to be able to do something that I love to do. But even for me, uh, you know, as, as a columnist who's been following this impeachment since it began in September, I mean, I got to tape my eyes open at this point. It's, <laughs> it's really, it, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievably difficult to watch at this point. We've heard all of this over and over. First, we heard it from the leaked secret testimony. Then we heard it at the testimony in the House. Now we're hearing it again. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it's hopefully this thing will, will be over soon. But as to the, the piece you mentioned, you know, it's, it's dangerous. What, what, what I say in the piece is that for the first 187 years of the United States, there was one president who faced impeachment. In the last 45, there have been three, put, put arguably in a more compelling way, one of the first 36 presidents faced impeachment. Three of the last nine have. That's a third. Now, if we move forward as a country where a third of our presidents face impeachment, it's a very different place than than what it used to be. And I think it's a dangerous one. You also write uh, in a companion piece of The Federalist that the effort to, to remove the duly elected president of the United States must not only be defeated, it must be mocked, humiliated and shown for the embarrassment that it is. Uh, that leads me to this question, which seems to be really the only pertinent one. Uh, at bar and will be through uh, at least the next several days, which is uh, should Republicans give Democrats what they want and call witnesses, knowing that Democrats, perhaps, as the Wall Street Journal editorial board argues, perhaps they don't actually want witnesses. They just want an argument in lieu of a case that they can use for the next 10 months, saying that the trial was rigged and it's unfair and that's the basis to vote against Trump. I, I, no, I, I don't think that, that Republicans should should move to witnesses for a couple of reasons. One is it's almost impossible to imagine that any witness would be able to testify something that gets to, to the root of this, which is what was Donald Trump's intent when he delayed and then eventually released this aid. You know, John Bolton's not going to walk into the Senate and say, you know, I was having a beer with the president one night and he said, I don't care about corruption at all. I just want to go get that, you know, Joe Biden guy and really screw him over. So. No, there's there's really there's really nothing more to be gained. And I think Alan Dershowitz's testimony might give Senate Republicans an off ramp, because what he's going to argue in the constitutional argument is that even if Trump did everything that he's alleged to have done, this still doesn't rise to the level of an of an impeachable offense. And I think that would give someone like a Susan Collins, uh, you know, or a Mitt Romney the opportunity to say, look, it's. The professor's right. Professor Dershowitz is right. There's really no point in, in moving forward with this. And then, you know, hopefully it'll come to a quick end. Well, I, I want to get your reaction to the argument the journal makes, because I'm I'm in your camp. But um, I find their argument, uh, you know, dangerously attractive, I think. Um, they the, the ed board suggests if the Senate calls more witnesses, you can hear both sides of the dispute over Trump's mens rea. What was in Trump's mind with respect to that uh, passage in the phone call between him and Zelensky. Hunter Biden can explain what he told his father about his business in Ukraine. Joe can explain the ethical wisdom of firing a Ukrainian prosecutor who is investigating Burisma. There's also former Obama uh, Obama energy czar Amos Hochstein, who raised concerns with Joe Biden and his aides about Hunter's Ukrainian ties. And let's hear from Chris Hines, former secretary of state, John Kerry's stepson, who broke business ties with Hunter because his Burisma work was unacceptable. You know, there's an appetite among some, including Trump loyalists, 
that they want to have this whole thing exposed and not just Trump exonerated, but uh, bad actors or at minimum disingenuous actors completely exposed as well. Yeah, I, look, I, I, I find that I think dangerously attractive is, is probably um, a good way to put it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought for months that the Democrats would not actually impeach Donald Trump for just this reason, that all of a sudden you're giving the Senate complete control. And if Mitch McConnell wants to, he can drag over the coals all those you know people that the that the journal listed. Um I just don't know that the public has much appetite for it. Um, I don't know that uh, the Trump team can get to any more of a point where they have a slam dunk victory than the House Democrats can. I think we just stay in this stalemate. Um, uh, so, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I would respectfully disagree with, mm-hmm. uh, with the good people of the journal. So uh, Thomas Meany, who we're going to have on later in the show, is a, a scholar at the Max Planck Institute uh, in Germany, and he uh, uh, had a piece in The Guardian, and, and he comes from you know being a Trump opponent and a Trump detractor and wanting to see Trump not reelected. But he says all impeachment has done is to make Donald Trump more popular. And I take that, uh, I think that's interesting because, of course, Trump brought his base with him to this impeachment party. They haven't wavered. So if he's making Trump, if this is making Trump more popular, and it clearly is, according to recent polling, then that means he must be converting people who are reluctant to support Trump because of what they perceive as the unfairness or overreach of uh, House Democrats. I think that makes some sense. I mean, I I, I think that, um, you know, anytime you're seeing uh, the president's approval rating tick up a bit as it has of late, uh, that almost inevitably means that more independent minded people who kind of vacillate on him a little bit, those those people do exist in the world, um, are sort of moving back to his side. And this does play into Trump's central message, which is that, um, you know, the Democrats and, and, and the elites, they, they hate you. They don't think that you, uh, sh- that you should be involved in choosing who the president is. They want to get rid of the electoral college. But, so there's a, there's, a, there's a sense of grievance that, that Trump can play that I think works really well um, in terms of exciting his base, because I think a lot of Trump supporters feel that this isn't just about Trump. This is really about them and, and their vision for the country. He is David Marcus, New York correspondent for The Federalist, contributor to New York Times, New York Post, and City Journal. David, thanks for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we were talking to uh, david marcus from the federalist in the previous segment for break about uh, the whole issue that really seems to be the only issue left to decide, ultimately, which is witnesses, whether or not to have them. And the Wall Street Journal opining on the topic, seeming to indicate, you know, maybe you should give the Democrats what they say they want, but what they really don't want. Uh, Before I get to that, though, not a lot of uh, 
media outlets picked up on this. I'm not sure any did. But perhaps the uh, most tense moment of the first two days of the trial of the century was when uh, this announcement was made. Did you catch this? Are you telling us absolutely everything? Not exactly. We're also out of coffee. <laughs> yeah, U.S. senators not uh, not allowed to have coffee, and uh, that uh, sort of upset the, the the somber mood in the chamber. I have all those prayerful Democrats in the Senate, just like in the House. So hopefully uh, this gets worked out as the trial proceeds. I hate to have that kind of chaos reign. Certainly, uh, Chief Justice Roberts isn't going to isn't going to tolerate that as well. Uh, in addition to uh, you know, any uh, salty language uh, that is inconsistent with the deliberative, uh, decorous institution that is the U.S. Senate. But anyway, back to this idea of witnesses. Uh, the uh, Wall Street Journal is responding in part to what Adam Schiff said, uh, CBS News with Nora O'Donnell. This was before. Of course, the uh, trial proceeding began, but it uh, bears repeating just what he said about uh, uh, the prospect of certain witnesses that the president would want if witnesses were to be agreed upon. Presumably you would want to call John Bolton, but are you prepared then for who the Republicans want to call as witnesses? Would that be fair? It would certainly be fair for the president and his team to be able to call witnesses that can provide material information on the charges. It would not be appropriate for the president to seek to call witnesses uh, merely to try to perpetuate the same smear campaign that was foiled when his plot was discovered. Yeah, I, you know, this is uh, Schiff and Democrats characterization of the portion of the phone call dealing with the uh, Biden Inc. But uh, this actually is material. And the Wall Street Journal makes the point it goes to Trump's mens rea, his mindset, his motivation. So wouldn't you want to know that? I mean, I thought this guy was an officer of the court. Well, and we are talking about Adam Schiff here, uh, who sometimes believes in courts and sometimes doesn't. It's an ironic, uh, rather curious position for an officer of the court. But nonetheless, um, yeah, if it was purely a corrupt motive, it was just political in nature for the 2020 election, Representative Schiff, wouldn't you want to know that as opposed to perhaps hearing testimony that would speak to his mindset that may indicate that there was a legitimate worry about political corruption. And so the Wall Street Journal makes that argument. Uh, did you, he was worried Ukraine might turn a blind eye to natural gas company Burisma, which had Hunter Biden on its board and, uh, and allegations of corruption that uh, surround that company. So why not? And why not bring forward people who also expressed concern about Hunter's role in Burisma, including his former business partner, John Kerry's stepson, Chris Hines, who broke ties with Hunter over the issue of his work for Burisma. Former Obama energy czar Amos Hochstein, who raised concerns with Joe Biden and his aides about Hunter's Ukrainian ties, as well as bringing forth Joe Biden to ask about uh, the wisdom of his decision to... uh, pressure for the firing of Ukrainian prosecutor who was investigating Burisma. So what about that? Is it worth going down that road to potentially expose not only House Democrats argument about this being a smear campaign or digging up dirt on political opponents and establish that, no, there was all sorts of legitimate reasons to raise the prospect of Burisma and the leveraging of U.S. government offices and uh, resources for the personal enrichment of 
of Hunter Biden, that you had, uh, you know, foreign corrupt practices afoot. Is it worth doing that or should, despite how tempting that might be, should uh, Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans stick to the posture they seem to have taken, which is uh, no witnesses. We want to move this along and we want to move the country forward beyond this as quickly as possible. Take some calls on the topic. Uh, Tim in Woodstock, you're on the Dan Prof show. Hi, Dan. Thanks a lot for taking my call. Thank you. Um, I think, um, you know, your comment earlier, I, I think it, it may well be a bluff on the part of the Democrats. Um, but, you know, we're all t- uh, tempted to think, I think, what's best politically. And I guess you can't totally discount that because uh, you have to think about what the larger good is. And in this case, for example, it's re-election of Donald Trump, I think, would be good for the country. But I think um, the best course of action, at least in my mind, is by asking what is, what's the right thing to do in any given situation and let that determine the future. And my thought is really to ask President Trump what he wants. Do you want us to vindicate your name? You know, when someone is smeared publicly, I think they deserve to have their name cleared. And there's no doubt that impeachment's a, a stain on his name. But they have the, the right to be cleared of the alleged wrongdoing. Uh, and I think unless they insist on letting it go. And I think President Trump has shown a great deal of courage, um, it, at least in applying the brakes to the country's, you know, slide towards socialism. Yeah. Uh, he stood up to the abortion industry. Um, he's showing the Republicans how to fight. And I, I think we owe him the opportunity to fight back here. Well, I think, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think, you know, so there's the the political calculus of sort of a bird in the hand right and then there's the secondary Mm -hmm. issue which you just mentioned about the opportunity to clear your name but here here would be my question back to that can you ever clear your name with half the country you know i mean it it, is brett kavanaugh ever going to be able to clear his name with half the country who buys uh the narrative that uh the democrat senators and their media cohorts told about brett kavanaugh can you really ever do it? Because people have just taken political positions regardless of the merits because they don't like or they do like a particular person. And so I, I just don't know. I assume with both sides calling witnesses, there will be moments that will be twisted that that that, that at minimum would be twisted into something that serves their narrative. And so do you wind up at the end of the day with uh, five or six weeks of witnesses in the same place we are today? Yeah, and that, and that's where you get into that issue of what's what's the greater good um, versus maybe just doing what you think is right. And I, I still tend to fall, you know, in the camp of, of of letting that person decide if they want their name vindicated. He's the one who's been smeared. So you know, I, I lean a little toward that, but I do I do wish the president would drop, for, at least for the time being, the word using the word hoax and witch hunt so much. I think he needs to. Uh, explain, even if they're just in little sound bites, just that, you know, the idea that because I have a political opponent uh, doesn't exempt that person from being investigated from what is my obligation to investigate. And I I would like to see him try to fight back a little little, and drop those, those, you know, the the easy words of hoax and witch hunt, because I think that that begins to kind of uh, blur over in people's minds after a while, too. Thanks for the call, Tim. Appreciate that. Fair points. Uh, Bill in uh, Chicago South Loop, you're on the Dan Prof Show. Yeah, I love the idea of calling their bluff. A, because we know they're bluffing. So when you know someone's bluffing, you always call their bluff. And B, it would be in the national interest 
to get to the bottom of a bribery scheme that reached the highest levels of the prior administration. Okay, they they weren't bribing a useless crackhead. They were bribing Vice President of the United States. All right, thanks for the call, Bill. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Two interesting explanatory pieces that I will take in turn. One from uh, Jason Riley, Wall Street Journal editorial board member. And uh, the other from Selena Zito, uh, that's in the Wall Street Journal, but she's uh, WashingtonExaminer.com, New York Post uh, reporter and commentator. Uh, first, Jason Riley's. They both have relevance to the November election and to, frankly, our politics going forward, our country going forward, our culture going forward. Uh, first by Riley. Why Obama won in 2020's black candidates couldn't. It's interesting. Jason Riley, for those of you who don't know, is an African-American gentleman. He uh, opens his piece by uh, referencing a, a conversation he had with a black friend over lunch after President Obama left office in which uh, the friend said to his, we, the, his friend said to him, said to Jason, we may not see a black president elected for a very long time after Obama. He said to uh, his friend that white Americans had taken a chance in Obama And not only had he underperformed, but he radicalized the presidency in ways that many voters didn't expect. And, of course, it's important to remember, as it pertains to race relations, that Americans thought race relations worsened considerably, but by by a considerable number uh, under President Obama. Gallup survey in 2015, 62 percent of respondents were dissatisfied with the state of race relations in the country. That was up from 40 percent in 2008, when President Obama was elected and was supposed to you know, usher in an era of racial healing. So t- after eight years of President Obama, the number of Americans who thought race relations uh, were not good and had worsened was uh, up by 50 percent. Uh, so uh, getting back to uh, Riley's observations, uh, he uh, is less pessimistic about the prospect of another black president. Than his friend, but the departure of uh, Cory Booker uh, and uh, Reparation H, Kamala Harris, got him thinking about how they ran their campaigns versus how Obama ran his in 2008. He writes, as the Democrat debate stage has become more monochrome, some of the le- some on the left are questioning the party's vaunted commitment to diversity and inclusion. But it's plausible that the decision by Mr. Booker and Ms. Harris to focus so much on racial issues is what put off would-be supporters. And I think he's zeroing in on the target here. He uh, notes the kind of race identity political campaigns that both of them ran. Booker launched his campaign on February 1st of last year, the first day of Black History Month. He uh, uh, highlighted, routinely highlighted black voter suppression, quote unquote, as a important issue on the campaign trail, despite the fact that we find a recent survey uh, that was done by The Washington Post Twelve and 13 blacks in America say they've never experienced anything uh, that they would characterize as voter suppression or an effort to prevent them from voting north of 90 percent. So but it's this it's this uh, structural, institutional, 
pervasive issue to hear Cory Booker and other race hustlers talk about it. Um, then, of course, the support for reparations and uh, uh, a number of candidates, including, as I termed her, Reparation H, trying to get to the left of the field on the reparations issue to pander to uh, black voters in the Democrat primary that are so important and have such political power, I mean, including in early states like South Carolina, of course. Uh, this the identity politics campaigning. Uh, this was, as Riley writes, identity politics campaigning in the mode, mold of Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. And we know how their presidential bids turned out. Moreover, it's close to the antithesis of how Mr. Obama ran. The former president understood both that he couldn't win without white voters and that those voters had repeatedly rejected black candidates, black presidential candidates who took confrontational approaches to racial issues. And he references uh, a book by the great Shelby Steele uh, about Obama's first White House run called A Bound Man. Steele uh, surmises that the future president was so skillful at winning over white audiences because he was a bargainer, someone who appeals to whites by agreeing not to play up the country's ugly racial history in return for not having his skin color held against him. Interesting analysis. And contrast that with the choices that Booker and Harris made in 2020, 2019 and 2020. They gave lip service to unity, observes Riley, but ultimately ran more racially belligerent campaigns. Obama, by contrast, chose to give whites the benefit of the doubt and generally tried to move past this sense of otherness between the races. The two senators kept racial differences front and center, and Obama tried to downplay Booker and Harris, Never missed an opportunity to blame black problems on white people, white power structure, that sort of thing. And Obama went the other direction. Uh, After the break, I want to pick up uh, the rest of Jason Riley's distillation of the senator's campaigns in 2019 and 2020 versus Senator Obama, who became President Obama's campaign, and also pick up Selena Zito's piece on the Second Amendment sanctuary movement. More coming up on The Dan Proctor. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We were talking about Jason Riley's piece, why the black senators, particularly Kamala Harris, said that held out so much promise in part because she's from California, but also because she's a black woman. So much promise for a party that's obsessed with identity politics. Well, how did those two candidates fall so flat? And Riley's piece compares President Obama's campaign in 2008 in particular to the campaigns that Cory Booker and Kamala Harris chose to run. Uh, He goes back to uh, Booker and Harris putting race front and center and uh, really challenging white people. emphasizing racial differences where Obama chose to downplay them. He goes back to Shelby Steele's book, Bound Man, in which Steele, again, develops this idea that Obama was a bargainer. Uh, I won't focus on the ugly racial history of America if you don't hold my race against me. Steele uh, writes, challengers, unlike bargainers, ride the back of the otherness rather than dispel it. Difference is their wedge and their power, so they have no bridge to the masses of America. Uh, he uh, admittedly, uh, Steele, was uh, excited about uh, Barack Obama's candidacy, 
but he thought that uh, Obama's ability to amass white voters without losing losing black support was going to be difficult. Didn't think Obama could win. Uh, but uh, it's a really interesting take. The combination of uh, Riley's perspective informed by Steele's book on the Obama candidacy, the challenger versus bargainer. And how uh, the the two categories have played out in our electoral politics, particularly at the national level. Uh, now, fast forward from Obama's election to how he actually governed and uh, Riley concedes the point that he governed quite differently from the way he campaigned. The race card was played early and often and in ways that deeply divided the nation. He had brought together to elect him. He repeatedly took sides in police incidents involving black suspects. Right. Trayvon Martin looks would look like what uh, my son would look like if I had a son. He dispatched his attorney general to attack voter ID laws as racist, made one of the country's most polarizing public figures. That would be Al Sharpton, his point man on civil rights. And this is why there was a feeling among the supermajority of Americans that race relations had worsened during his tenure. Uh, so does that did that play? Did how Obama actually governed, did that play into people's minds? Democrat primary voters minds really is all we're talking about here with respect to uh, a Kamala Harris candidacy or a Cory Booker candidacy. It's hard to say, Riley says, perhaps, or maybe they just ran bad campaigns that ignored the most important lessons of Obama's first run. Say what you want about how he ran the country. He knew how to win, uh, observes uh, Riley. I think um, the uh, the challengers versus bargainers is interesting, too. And I, and, and I want to just develop that for a minute because I don't think what Shelby Steele is saying, and I know Shelby Steele, in fact, I'm fairly confident what he said, that uh, what he's saying is not... Oh, just you would just ignore the ugly racial history of America. This goes back to the conversations and discussions we've been having on this show about the 1619 Project. Oh, just paper over Jim Crow, just paper over slavery. Nobody's saying that. And Shelby Steele certainly isn't. They're saying that, look, uh, what do you want me to do about slavery in 21st century America? What do you want me to do about Jim Crow? I wasn't a part of that. In a lot of cases, my ancestors weren't a part of that. And and you can blame me all day long, but how does that help you or anybody else right now? I mean, is that what you want to spend your life doing? Uh, having a, a, some sort of reckoning, finding a material way to have a reckoning for people who behaved badly, really barbarically, generations and generations ago? To what ends? And, uh, and it's divisive, of course, by its nature. So being the bargainer is not to say I'm going to ignore history or I'm going to uh, try to sanitize what was uh, what is not sanitizable. The institutions like slavery and Jim Crow laws, it's saying uh, let's recognize uh, the horrible institutions that were part of our nation's history and how horribly people were treated. And that's part of our nation's history. And then let's chart a better course today because I'm not those guys and neither are you. You're you're not you've never been a slave and you're not a slave now. And I've never been a slaveholder and I'm not one now. So what does the way forward look like, particularly as our society gets more and more uh, racially mixed? Doesn't this stuff become less and less relevant? And the answer the left has to this, of course, is. 
Well, then we come up with intersectionality so that you have to, you know, add up all of your uh, racial and gender identity and religious components to see who has the highest intersectionality score so we can still play identity politics. And uh, ironically, Shelby Steele's son, Eli, has a great documentary about this very issue called How Jack Became Black, talking about his son and getting his son into school in L.A. public school system and how they wanted uh, his son, Eli's son, Jack, uh, he wanted, they wanted Eli to check a box for his son in terms of his racial, racial identification. And Eli's, well, uh, there is no box here. I'm not checking other. And my son is black and Jewish and white and Native American. So which proceeds, yeah, which is preeminent over the other? Which box do I check? doesn't matter. Uh, I, I think, if I'm remembering correctly from his film, about uh, one in six couples in America today is uh, a, a mixed-race couple. This stuff should be getting less important, not more important, your racial profile. Uh, and Booker and Harris wanted to make it more important as it's becoming less important. You're trying to force people uh, to accentuate issues that they're uncomfortable accentuating. And that, frankly, as we're a more racially diverse and tolerant of that diversity uh, society, uh, you know, people just find to be tone deaf and unnecessarily provocative. And that's, I think, why they fell by the wayside. And I think not necessarily Obama as sort of the Manchurian candidate for the radical left is sort of a, a false bargainer. I would argue, based on how he actually performed. And I'm not surprised because I knew him as a state senator and U.S. senator from Illinois. That's not the model either, and I'm sure Shelby Steele wouldn't suggest that. The model is uh, genuine, genuine, authentic bargainers, to borrow the Shelby Steeleism. Recognize what has happened, but also figure out a way where we can peacefully coexist and work together so... Uh, horrific things like those that have happened in America's past are not part of America's future. This is the Dan Talk. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Time now for another reason why Dan Proft is single. Yeah, to lighten the mood from uh, the dreariness of the impeachment trial. And uh, again, this uh, recurring segment on the Dan Proft Show is about why I'm single from my perspective. Of course, there is the female perspective. There's all kinds of reasons why I'm repellent to them from their perspective. But this is my perspective. I get to have my say. And uh, the... uh, Latest reason comes from our friend Suzanne Vanker, who's a contributor to the Washington Examiner's uh, Beltway Confidential blog, author and columnist, radio host. Uh, And uh, she uh, sounds a crucial alarm all modern men should heed. And it comes in part from Lawrence Fox, who's this uh, British actor uh, actor who uh, recently admitted that he broke up with his girlfriend because of her stance on – on the Me Too movement and hashtag believe women. And by the way, if you can summarize your views on complicated issues in a hashtag, then your views are not uh, complicated, commensurate to the issue. Uh, but believe women, the concept of toxic, toxic masculinity. Uh, Lawrence Fox now refuses to date women under 35 
because most are woke and he, he and honestly believe they're oppressed. He said uh, on a, a podcast with uh, James Dellingpole, uh, I don't know how we ended up together about his former for, uh, girlfriend. It was a very short relationship. We were just walking down the road and she was talking about how good the Gillette advertisement was. I just looked at her and went, bye. Sorry, I can't do this with you. And uh, here's the most important part of what Fox had to say. Venka writes, you know, when a woman starts speaking to you like that, you need to run. She's literally going. She's literally giving you two very strong hints that she's about to make your life miserable. And Vanker agrees, writing, there are very few men in the modern world who haven't been in the same boat as Fox at one time or the other. Dating a woman who somewhere along the line lets her extremist feminism out. When it happens, that's when a man needs to run. Fox is dead on. Dating women like that is going to make your life miserable. And Vanker says, "This look, this is an example of the Lawrence Fox's former girlfriend of what modern feminism is. Feminism is a push to disempower men to create a matriarchy. Equality is just a ruse to get folks on board. And so many people fall for it, men included. After all, who could be against equality? It was a brilliant tactic. But every man should push back against women who tells him how to think and feel. Woke young women who believe they're oppressed will never make a good wife. So do what Fox did. Run, she says, because here's what happens when you don't. (laughs) Here's what happens when you don't. Very high profile example. I had seen this documentary on Netflix about feminism. And one of the things they said during pregnancy was, I feel the embryonic kicking of feminism. I love that. You know who said that? The former Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle. And what happened when Prince Harry didn't run? He lost his royal title. He lost the millions of dollars uh, that uh, he gets from British taxpayers to live a life of relative leisure and privilege. And now he's a flacking for Meghan for VO work at Disney with Bob Iger at Lion King openings. That's what happens. And that's why Dan Proft is single. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prop Show. With all the acrimony in our politics and Trump at the center of it, you sometimes forget, because he's a street fighter, that he's also a acolyte of Norman Vincent Peale. Power of positive thinking. He's an optimist, particularly on America. And uh, that was evident in his remarks at the World Economic Forum in Davos yesterday, including uh, this riff on America's revival under one President Trump. When I spoke at this forum two years ago, I told you that we had launched the great American comeback. Today, I'm proud to declare that the United States is in the midst of an economic boom, the likes of which the world has never seen before. We've regained our stride, rediscovered our spirit, and reawakened the powerful machinery of American enterprise. America is thriving. America is flourishing. And yes, America is winning again like never before. And as we uh, discussed yesterday, he spoke specifically about the blue collar boom. And he offered statements like we've adopted a whole new approach centered entirely on the well-being of the American worker. It's interesting. Don Serber writing at his blog. 
putting the people first is straight out of Sun Tzu, who said, regard your soldiers as your children, and they will follow you into the deepest valleys. Look upon them as your own beloved sons, and they will stand by you even unto death there. I just explained why Donald Trump supporters do not waver. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, there's a populist element. I'm not a populist. Populism can uh, present itself in all kinds of ways, many of them negative. But it's, you certainly understand the affinity for Trump. He has defined a constituency, and he has acted in furtherance of serving that constituency. It's actually not that complicated, except it seems to be beyond the grasp of so many of the members of the uh, vanguard class who assembled in Davos to hear those words. Isn't it? So obsessed with climate change, are they? Walter Russell Mead has a fun piece. There is something inescapably ridiculous about a gathering this self-important. Certainly, Marie Antoinette and her friends dressing up as shepherdesses to celebrate the simple life has nothing on the more than 100 billionaires descending, often by private jet, on an exclusive Swiss ski resort for four days of unsustentious hand-wringing about the problems of the poor and the dangers of climate change. This year, an earnest young aide at registration told me that to reduce the event's carbon footprint, no paper maps of the town were being distributed. One could almost feel the waves of relief from the nearby alpine glaciers at this sign of green progress, Mead writes sarcastically. Right, so everybody's coming down on private jets, but uh, no paper maps. There we go. Strike a blow for Mother Earth. But the question he poses at the end of his piece, the observation in question, is really key. As the millionaires, billionaires, and Greta assemble in Davos this week to debate the future of the world, they face a crisis of relevance. What if... With all of their competence, experience, cosmopolitan vision, and yes, goodwill, the Davosi are merely passengers, comfortably ensconced in first-class seats on a train whose route they do not know and cannot control. This is such an important point about what's going on within elite circles, the crisis of relevance, and so thus the need to hand-wring over things that are marginal and sometimes wholly manufactured. Because what do you have to say about how things are progressing under President Trump? How do you mau-mau it? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Matt Ridley. He's a contributor to The Wall Street Journal, Spectator, and London Times. He's the author of The Rational Optimist, How Prosperity Evolves, and also the upcoming book, How Innovation Works. And he is a member of the House of Lords across the pond. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be on your show. I'm actually sitting in a closet in the House of Lords to try and find somewhere quiet. Oh, very good. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, this whole uh, week uh, in Davos and, and some of Walter Russell Mead's observations, it, it, uh, it dovetails nicely with a piece that you wrote for The Spectator about how, uh, you know, we may not be living in Candide, Dr. Pangloss, but things are pretty good. Exactly. And uh, Walter Russell is spot on with his observations. I mean, I wrote a book 10 years ago saying the world's been getting better, not worse, and at an accelerating rate, and it's likely to do so in the coming decade. Boy, have I been proved right, even though I was writing that book at a time when the world was in a great recession and looked like it might struggle to get out of it. I'm not claiming to be as fast sighted seer. I'm just saying that the process by which we generate prosperity uh, has continued for a very long time and will likely continue and is reaching really, really poor people. I mean, the percentage of the world population that lives in extreme poverty, less than a dollar ninety a day, has doubled in the last decade. That's extraordinary. We're now down to less than 10% of the world living at that level. It was about 60% when I was born. No generation has ever lived through an experience of lifting people out of poverty like that. We're defeating child mortality. We're increasing lifespan at the rate of about five hours a day around the world. You know, these are incredibly good times to be alive. And yet, we're telling the young, as we told previous generations when I was young, the same thing happened, that the future 
is bleak and we're all doomed. Matt, what do you make of Greta Thunberg slamming world leaders on climate change, saying nothing has been done? Well, I feel very sorry for her because uh, I don't know where she's getting the idea that, A, nothing's been done, B, that it's uh, an, an imminent and uh, immediate catastrophe, uh, and see that she should be should be really really panicked. That's the word she likes to use uh, about the future. But some adults have very irresponsibly told her that that she's doomed, and I think they should be t- held to account for that because it just simply isn't true. It's not supported by the science produced by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which shows a slow, gradual, and mostly so far beneficial warming. Um, with some danger that later in the century it will be fast enough or extreme enough to cause damage. But uh, at the moment, the number of people killed in droughts, floods and storms continues to decline very rapidly, not go up. Um, uh, And where there are effects of climate change, they are are on the whole pretty mild. Uh, So... Um, and she talks about, you know, some of uh, some of her pronouncements are about uh, extinctions uh, and the likelihood that a lot of life will go extinct and that human beings will get so hungry in the next 10 years that they'll start eating um, uh, maybe even each other. That's what the Extinction Rebellion movement says. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is nonsense. The amount of food available per head in the world is going up rapidly. The amount of land we need to produce that food is actually going down because of the improvement in agriculture. So... Um, ingenuity, human ingenuity, innovation is delivering huge benefits to humankind and to the natural environment, and that's likely to continue. Yeah, again, one of the predictions you made a a decade ago that we're getting more sustainable is being borne out by some of the research, including um, this study that was tweeted out by Judith Curry, who's who's actually a scientist, as opposed to so many who inveigh on the topic of climate change who are not. Uh, and uh, the the study is by uh, academics in the Environmental Economics and Policy Studies Journal. Find is that actually uh, the social cost of carbon is uh, uh, negligible. Uh, that uh, yeah, yeah that, this is a new yes. new, new paper by uh, Rick, uh, Ross McKittrick. Correct. Uh, in Canada, yes. and he's just sent it to me, and I haven't um, read the details, but. Um, it's certainly true that the social cost of carbon, that is the total cost of the damage done by global warming, um, uh, is an embarrassment to the to the activist community because it, they, however they dress up the figure, they cannot get this number to come out as dangerously high. And in point and, of fact, uh, uh, just, what, just, what, just, just to read one sentence from the abstract, the, the, uh, these researchers, McKittrick and, and his colleagues, the lower bound of the social cost of carbon is likely negative – the upper bound is much lower than previously claimed, at least through mid-21st century. Correct. And that, the, 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 this is based on latest estimates of the uh, climate sensitivity, that is to say the amount of um, warming produced by a given increase in carbon dioxide. And I've been drawing attention for a number of years now. I first wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal, and they would also have mentioned this, to the fact that there is a um, general increase in green vegetation in the world going on. Um, this is proved by satellite data, but it's also proved by on-the-ground experiments and other uh, evidence. Uh, and what that is uh, caused by is largely the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Because carbon dioxide is plant food, and particularly in arid areas, mm-hmm. um, it is easier for plants to grow uh, in when there isn't a lot of water around uh, if there's more carbon dioxide in the air. That's why we put extra carbon dioxide into green, commercial greenhouses to grow uh, more tomatoes. 
Um, that's you know what happens in the world. So you know that's a benefit of CO2. I wanted to it add has to be weighed against the, the costs. I don't want to just focus on good times in, in America. It seems like uh, happy times may be there again in the UK as well. I saw a story that um, more than 1,000 uh, financial services firms are uh, moving to open offices in the UK post-Brexit. So uh, p- perhaps Brexit is not going to lead to the shriveling up and dying of the British economy? Certainly not. Uh, we, we leave the European Union uh, next Friday. And it's been a long battle to get um, uh, the country to accept it. And indeed, they're being battled again today uh, in Parliament to finally get the bill through that enables this to happen. Um, but Boris Johnson. He is Matt Ridley. He's a contributor to the Wall Street Journal, Spectator, London Times, author of The Rational Optimist, How Prosperity Evolves, and the upcoming How Innovation Works. That's his forthcoming book. He's also a member of the House of Lords in the UK. And Matt Ridley, thank you so much for making the time. We appreciate it. It was great to talk to you today. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We didn't get to this uh, yesterday this uh, interview that Hillary Clinton did with The Hollywood Reporter. So I want to get to it today. It's just so much fun. She just never stops stirring the pot, mainly to the benefit of her political opponents. It really hasn't stopped for 25 years, from vast right-wing conspiracy as their cover story for her husband's impeachment to present. It's just one long trail of tears and Arkansides, as the uh, term is. This Hollywood Reporter interview, interviewer, asks her about... uh, Bernie Sanders. Now, this is all because uh, there's a a, uh, forthcoming four-part Hulu series entitled Hillary that's set to premiere at Sundance. Uh, It features uh, Monica Lewinsky opening up uh, and, uh, uh, among other things, her feelings about Bernie Sanders. She was asked in your documentary by The Hollywood Reporter now. In your documentary, you're brutally honest about Bolshevik Bernie, my phrase. He was in Congress for years. He had one senator support him. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him. He's got nothing done. He was a career politician. It's all just baloney, and I feel so bad that people got sucked into it. Does that assessment still hold? She was asked. Yes, it does. Well, there you go. If he gets the nomination, will you endorse and campaign for him? Hillary's response, I'm not going to go there yet. We're still in a very vigorous primary season. I will say, however, that it's... Not only him, it's the culture around him. It's his leadership team. It's his prominent supporters. It's his online Bernie bros and their relentless attacks on lots of his competitors, particularly the women. And I really hope people are paying attention to that because it should be worrisome that he has permitted this culture. Not only permitted, he seems to really be very much supporting it. And I don't think we want to go down that road again where you campaign by insult and attack and maybe you try to get some distance from it. But you either don't know what your campaign and supporters are doing or you're just giving them a wink and you want them to go after Kamala Harris or after Elizabeth Warren. I think that's a pattern that people should take into account when they make their decisions. Ooh, pointed words. And, uh, you know, you shouldn't go on. You shouldn't insult and attack. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him. Of course, Hillary is perhaps the least self-aware human being on the planet and one of its most vile. A comrade Bernie responded to uh, these uh, answers that Hillary Clinton gave. Porters caught up to him uh, in advance of him uh, sitting and reading his card about how to deal with 
people who touch him as he presides, uh, one of the senators presiding as a juror in part over the Senate impeachment trial. Uh, Secretary Clinton, as you know, said that uh, as a senator, you got nothing done and that no one likes you. What's your response to that? Well, on a good day, my wife likes me, so let's, let's clear the air on that one. Hi-o. Um, look, uh, right now, today, I am dealing with impeachment. But so there's something Secretary Clinton said was about uh, your supporters and uh, criticizing them. All right, look, look, look. Secretary Clinton is entitled to uh, you know, her point of view. Uh, my job today is to focus on the impeachment trial. Uh, my job today is to put together a team that can defeat the most dangerous president uh, in the history of the United States of America. Why do you think the secretary is still talking about 2016? That is a good question. Ask him. Okay, thanks very much. How are you prepared to- that is a good question. I think we all know the answer. That's why one can leave it without a formal answer. The interesting observation about Hillary by uh, one random tweeter. Hillary not only lost to Trump, perhaps more significantly, she also lost the Democrat Party to its left wing. The polarity of the enormous rage to be unleashed on the orange man was reversed and jolted the establishment instead. Listen to the metaphor he uses as he goes on in this thread. When the HMS Prince of Wales was torpedoed off of Malaya, the torpedo by itself caused no fatal damage. But it bent the propeller drive shaft and her mighty engines, turning what was now a corkscrew, opened the dreadnought hull like a can opener. The very might and power of the Clinton campaign dragged down the party in its ruin. The gigantic flailings of the dossier, crossfire, hurricane, etc., laid waste to the center and has, she now sees, allowed Bernie to crawl to the bridge of the wreck. And then there's the earth-shedding irony that she's the one who fired the torpedo in the first place. I, I think that's spot on. She continues to be a significant reason, not not just the wreckage she caused with, uh, with the, her performance in 2016, and frankly, just as I said, over the last 25 years, but particularly in 2016, maybe culminating in 2016, after she was dispatched by Obama in 2008, that, that wreckage is still something that uh, the Democrat Socialist Party, which is what it's become, is trying to deal with. And she continues, continues through her presence to prevent uh, such a reorganization, if you will. And so when you have the likes of AOC, as we played yesterday, suggesting that the Democrat Party today is a conservative, is a center conservative party, uh, this is how, this is how uh, upside down it is. Uh, we'll talk to uh, uh, a uh, scholar, Thomas Meany, from the Max Planck Institute in the next hour. And uh, I, I suspect he's going to tell us that uh, there's a real issue with where the energy in the Bernie Sanders campaigns of 16 and 20 goes when Bernie Sanders goes. And it's not clear at all uh, that, that the, the sort of the leftist strain of populism that has buoyed Bernie Sanders despite being, well, I guess to, despite or because or some combination of the two, the fact that he's, uh, you know, died in the wool uh, Bolshevik, that he's a red, that he's a revolutionary from the the hard left, of course. There's one other aspect of this interview that Hillary Clinton gave that is worth commenting on, and, and, and this has been lost largely because of, of course, the D.C. press corps want, desire to focus on the interpersonal conflict between politicians, Bernie and Warren, Bernie and Hillary, so forth. Uh, she was asked by the Hollywood Reporter, and good for them for asking, 
about her association to Harvey Weinstein, who's now on trial for predatory sexual assault in Manhattan and is indicted in L.A. More trials to come. She responded, uh, how could we have known? He raised money for me, for the Obamas, for Democrats in general. And that at the time was something that everybody thought made sense. And of course, if all of us had known what uh, known what we know now, it would have affected our behavior. Well, what did you know and when did you know it? Well, that's a question you always have to ask with the Clintons, isn't it? Uh, Actress Lena Dunham said she mentioned Weinstein's conduct to Clinton's deputy communications director in March of 2016 before Clinton was even the nominee for president in that cycle. Uh, She said, Dunham, I want you. I I just want to let you know that Harvey uh, Harvey's a rapist and he's this is going to come out at some point. The uh, deputy comms director, according to Dunham, was surprised by the allegation, said she would tell Clinton's campaign manager, Robbie Mook. Dunham also said she alerted a Clinton spokeswoman who led the efforts with celebrity campaigners of Weinstein's alleged misconduct. Both of the people Dunham allegedly spoke with about Weinstein deny that she ever mentioned rape in her warnings about Weinstein. And Mook, the campaign manager, said he was never told of the allegations. Of course, you know, plausible deniability. Uh, But there's more plausible deniability that's required. Hollywood reporter, magazine editor Tina Brown said she told a member of Clinton's inner circle about Weinstein as far back as 2008 during Hillary's first presidential run. And uh, and again, a flack for the Clinton campaign said no one recalls a warning from Tina Brown. Well, uh, no one much trusts Hillary Clinton, do they? And when we come back, I want to tackle the Weinstein trial because there's a development there with a juror that's particularly interesting, uh, given Weinstein's connect to the Hollywood and the Hollywood elite and the the Democrat socialist elite as well. We'll pick that up on the Dan Prop Show. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. So we're talking about uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, her defense of her affiliation with Weinstein in this Hollywood Reporter interview. And, of course, Weinstein's on trial right now. And there, there is an interesting story just as the trial is getting underway in Manhattan. Again, he's on trial for predatory sexual assault. And uh, it's possible that the judge in the case has already given Weinstein grounds for a successful appeal if he were to be convicted. Uh, Caroline Court writes about it in The Federalist, voir dire, the jury selection process. Uh, In a letter to the court, Weinstein's lawyers disclosed that their jury questionnaire included a catch-all question at the end. The question was this. Is there anything else that you believe the judge and the party should know about your qualifications to serve as a fair and impartial juror in the case? Essentially, it's a way to ask juror for anything that they may not have covered in the questionnaire, but they should know about in any potential conflict or uh, anything that would bias their judgment in the case. Well, it turns out one of the prospective jurors has a novel coming out later this year that she did not disclose, not with the level of detail required given the novel. Miss Cord in her piece of the Fellows doesn't disclose her name, but it's Amanda Brainerd. I mean, she's published in The Atlantic about uh, the passing of another author, Elizabeth Wurzel, or earlier in the month and so forth. So 
this is not exactly um, uh, much of a whodunit. Amanda Brainerd is her name. She's got a novel out. Here's how she describes the book on her personal website. Three young women in the 1980s who negotiate fraught friendships, sexuality, class, and predatory older men on the journey from innocence to independence. The narrative takes place at a boarding school in Connecticut and a summer spent in New York City. Mm -hmm. So the answer to the question, that uh, catch-all question I mentioned, anything else that you believe the judge and party should know about your qualifications? She said no. She didn't believe there was any additional information that would be relevant. But she's got a novel that, you know, frankly tracks with the Weinstein story and the allegations against him. Um, Oh, by the way, she's not, uh, you know, a confused young woman. She graduated from Harvard, magna cum laude, and she has got a master's degree from Columbia University. She's a sophisticated woman. Uh, The transcript went like this. Can you tell us what the book is about? Yes, it's about parents and teenagers. The three main characters are teenage girls and their parents and their struggle. Question, does it have anything to do with predatory older men? All three girls have some relationship with an older man, but it's not a predatory situation at all. Does it have anything to do with the sort of individuals who may, who may, young women, who may be involved with older men that may be considered predatory? She says no. But her website says three young women in the 1980s who negotiate fraud, friendship, sexuality, class, and predatory older men on the journey from innocence to independence. So uh, she's not confused about what she wrote. She's the author of the novel that's forthcoming. She's also the author of the responses or the teasers on her website. By the way, the name of the book, just to to disabuse you of the notion there's any confusion, Age of Consent. But no, this isn't about predatory men. So does this bias her ability to serve on the jury? Well, this was brought up by Weinstein's defense team. And no matter how big of a human stain, as he's been called, you think Weinstein is, and I think he's a massive one. I think he is a predatory old man, and I think he should be in prison for what we have very good reason to believe he did over and over again. So this is no defense of Weinstein, but it is a defense of the system. Defense team for Weinstein, of course, asked the judge to dismiss this juror for cause. They didn't have any preemptory challenges left, and this obviously came, they became aware of this after they had used their preemptory challenges. And the judge said no. She has seated this juror on the jury of seven men and five women that will make a determination on Weinstein's guilt or innocence in this case. Now, on appeal, if he were to be convicted and the appellate court to have a problem with this, they could declare a mistrial and have him retried. But the the judicial decision here, we talk a lot about criminal justice. When we talk about the criminal justice system, it's almost exclusively about police. Sometimes we get into prosecutors when you have incompetent and, and prosecutors of questionable ethics like, say, I do in Cook County with Kim Fox, think Jussie Smollett. But uh, judges, too, there's not enough scrutiny on judges. And you have a judge who may have just given uh, Harvey Weinstein something akin to a get-out-of-jail-free card. And uh, if he's acquitted, I don't know, maybe he can start raising money for the Clinton Foundation again or something or spend his time focused on the NRA. The bottom line is if you have to retry him, it becomes problematic. The, the jurisprudence, uh, just to the cursory glance, I'm trying to remember a little bit from law school, but The jurisprudence on dishonesty by jurors with respect to overturning convictions is not uniform. So it's an open question, but it's a question nonetheless. And why wouldn't you want to avoid it and just seat another juror? I don't really understand the judge's decision in this case because the novel hasn't been published. She determined in her 
holding that this juror could sit on the jury. It would just be unfortunate if um, there were political considerations here that would provide Harvey Weinstein with an opportunity to avoid his just punishment. That's what I'm saying. And it's just a very curious case. And you hate to see the rich and powerful uh, be able to manipulate the justice system. And you hate to see judges give them the opportunity to do so. This is The Dan Prof Show. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Back to The Dan Prof Show. We talked about this a bit yesterday, but I want to pick it up. Selena Zito with a good piece in the Wall Street Journal I mentioned in the first hour. We didn't get to it. The Second Amendment sanctuary movement isn't going away. She notes, as uh, we noted yesterday, 91 of Virginia's 96 counties have passed sanctuary measures to resist proposed state gun regulation. In uh, the deep blue state of Illinois, where I reside, more than 70 of our state's 102 counties have done the same. So sometimes the political representation that has national profile belies a lot of disagreement that occurs within the state and regions of the state, perhaps some of the less populous ones, but they count too. Selena Zito in her uh, piece profiles Troy Carter, 49 years old, said that uh, other than voting, he's never been involved in politics, but that changed last year when he heard a county board of supervisors in Virginia voted to become a gun sanctuary. He turned out on Monday for the peaceful rally of law-abiding gun owners in Richmond to support gun rights. He um, basically said, look, I just couldn't believe the amount of people that showed up, but he knows that the people who covered the rally in Virginia, the media, and Virginia gun policy will never understand him, the politicians like Ralph K.K. Northam. But he said, I'm in the game now, and a lot of people know, I know are in the game. I'm willing to go out and put some boots on the ground, so to speak, tell people, the proper people get elected in office that will actually represent the whole majority of the people in Virginia, not just Northern Virginia, not just Richmond, but the whole state. And this is the case in a lot of states that are dominated by a big urban center, like a Chicago and Illinois, or a couple of big urban centers like an LA and a San Francisco in California. I mean, you get the drill, Northern Virginia dominating Virginia and moving that state blue because of all those well-heeled federal workers that decided to uh, relocate to Northern Virginia and are part of the big government machinery uh, at the federal level. But it's also the response that this is, you know, very much symbolic of the time. It's also the response that is provided by the media to people like Troy Carter, who was perhaps marginally involved, perfunctorily involved, but is getting more involved. Now I'm going to put boots on the ground. I'm going to work for candidates. The L.A. Times opining on the Second Amendment sanctuary movement, which, again, if it's done at the local unit of government level, means the locality won't use law enforcement resources to prosecute proposed anti-gun laws, whether in Virginia or elsewhere. Uh, and whether these resolutions have teeth depends on the resolve of those local officials. But at the very least, they're a reflection of sentiment on restrictions on your Second Amendment rights. L.A. Times noting that 400 local jurisdictions in 20 states have adopted similar resolutions to those in Virginia and Illinois that were mentioned, with uh, some with more bite than others, but all in defiance of the law. The simple fact is this, opine the L.A. Times. Local governments cannot decide willy-nilly that if they don't like a state law, they don't have to enforce it. While states may have powers unique from the federal governments, no such duality exists at the municipal level. Cities have only the powers granted to them by their states. Well, yeah, that's true. And, of course, they can see the pushback coming, which is to sanctuary cities, counties, states, as it pertains to immigration policies. The LA Times argues those movements are related in name only. It's possible to support the latter, 
without supporting the former. Immigration codes, after all, part of federal civil law, not criminal law. Not totally. And local jurisdictions have the right to decide that they don't want to use local tax dollars to enforce federal civil codes. They may not impede the federal government's ability to enforce its immigration codes, but they don't have to cooperate. Yeah. That is um, that is uh, not completely accurate, particularly when you're talking about detainer requests that absolutely have to do with those who have been alleged to have committed crimes. So the intersection between immigration codes and state and or federal criminal law. So that is a very disingenuous way to try to detach the sanctuary unit of government, fill in your unit of government movement as it pertains to immigration as compared to Second Amendment. It's not going away. Uh, Selena Zito is absolutely right. It's not going away. People aren't going to stand down. They're not going to be stripped of their right to protect themselves. And it's interesting because it's one of those movements, as we discussed a bit yesterday, that really spans the political spectrum, maybe not the very hard left. There's not a lot of politicians that want to tangle with gun rights groups, gun owners, law-abiding gun owners within their communities. Uh, Ralph Northam is willing to do it because he's term limited as governor. You get one term in Virginia and you're done. So there's no political reckoning that will be visited upon him unless he has aspirations for other offices like Senate, which I doubt he does. He was lucky to survive as governor given his uh, blackface hood issues. It, it also goes, though, to, to this idea that they're Despite all of the partisan rancor and the Trump hate, and uh, if you watch the season premiere of Curb Your, Enth- of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which was excellent, uh, the idea that people can't even be around people who wear MAGA hats, right? The, Ma- the MAGA hat is a people repellent in certain places. I can't even tolerate your presence if you're a Trump supporter, and in particular if there's any visible representation of that support. But then there are issues like self-protection, Second Amendment rights, where you get people across the political spectrum that do agree. And that can provide a powerful force to to bring politicians across the political spectrum to consensus. And another example of this, and this is Selena Zito again writing the New York Post, happened in Pennsylvania. Representative Cheryl DeLazer, DeLazer? she's a Republican from a white conservative district. Jordan Harris is a Democrat from a predominantly black Philadelphia district, and they came together to advance a criminal justice reform measure that passed overwhelmingly in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, 193 to 4, that helps former convicts get professional licenses, removing some of the blocks for former convicts if they you know, go through the licensing procedure and uh, obviously stay on the right side of the law. They can get professional licenses that provides them the ability to be self-sustaining, and thus the ability to be good citizens, cosmetology, nursing, funeral services, accounting, those sorts of things. Um, now, you know, you can argue the particulars of criminal justice reform and um, the sort of pathway to somebody leaving behind a life of crime to uh, being a productive citizen. I don't think it's as seamless as just passing job training programs or removing blocks to licensing. But, but just setting that aside for the moment, the idea here, again, that there are areas of common ground if you can focus on the substance and you start from uh, similar first principles. That was the case with this criminal justice reform measure in the pen- at the state level in Pennsylvania. Frankly, it was the case at the federal level with President Trump and uh, House Democrats when he announced criminal justice reform, a measure that had uh, achieved bipartisan support uh, last fall. Uh, and it's the same with the Second Amendment, uh, individual Second Amendment rights. So you're just not going to have a country 
that cedes its ability to protect itself, that cedes its God-given rights to a handful of uh, insulated politicians who lord over urban centers or states that are dominated by a handful of urban centers. You're not going to have that, nor should we. This is the Dan Prof Show. And hold my hand. Love is kind of crazy with a spooky little girl like you. Spooky. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. You know, the great sci-fi writer William Gibson said that the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. But uh, this new book about UFOs, boy, that takes that to an extreme. Michael Masters is a professor of biological anthropology at Montana Technological University in Butte, Montana. And uh, his book identified flying objects. A multidisciplinary scientific approach to the UFO to the UFO phenomenon. That uh, sounds more sterile than it actually is. The thesis of the book is that uh, we don't have extraterrestrials; we have extra tempestrials. Those aliens that come to visit us, if you believe that, the truth is out there. Uh, those aliens that come to visit us are us. We're the aliens. It's time travel, time travelers from the future, you know, like Eric Bannon, the time traveler's wife, but in space uh, and through spaceships. The uh, book ties together those known aspects of our evolutionary history with what is still unproven, unverified aspect of UFOs, said Masters. Why not? uh, He he said uh, that we know we're here. We know humans exist. We know we've had a long evolutionary history on this planet. And we know our technology is going to be more advanced in the future. I think the simplest explanation innately is that it is us. I'm just trying to offer what is likely the most parsimonious explanation. This is what he thinks is uh, qualifies as an Occam's razor explanation for UFO sightings, abductions and the like. He uh, notes the uh, close encounter accounts typically describe UFO tenants as as bipedal, hairless human-like beings with large brains, large eyes, small noses, and small mouths. And most of that we've seen from modeling is just the result of generations of cell phone use. (laughs) So maybe. Uh, He also argues that creatures are often said to have the ability to communicate with us in our own language and possess technology advanced beyond, but clearly built upon today's technological prowess. He believes that the abduction accounts are actually mostly scientific in nature, saying it's probably future anthropologists, historians, linguists that are coming back to get information in a way that we currently can't without access to the technology that they have in the future. Are you following this? He also said, I do think some component of the time travel back to us is tourism. Undoubtedly, in the future, there are those who will pay a lot of money to have the opportunity to go back and observe their favorite period in history, you know, prehistoric periods and like. So the future Elon Musk's, and Jeff Bezos says we'll be traveling back here to their favorite periods of in, his, in history, even though maybe Peter Thiel, too, even though their brains are attached to robots or they these are future generations of Elon Musk and Bezos that are building on the technology that their uh, 
forefathers developed, like SpaceX? I, I don't know. It all gets confusing, but I'll tell you what, it would make one hell of an Outer Limits episode, this book. So at minimum, even if you don't want to believe it, it'd be great to have Hollywood option it for a screenplay and uh, turn this into a movie, because I, I think it could actually be kind of good. This is the Dan Proctor. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. One of the uh, important summations in yesterday's competing oral arguments from the two sides in the impeachment trial uh, came from a Pat Cipollone, White House counsel. He addressed this statement that has been made by the House managers during opening arguments, but also by House Democrats, amplified by the Beltway Press Corps for many months now, which is that the evidence is overwhelming. It's very much what they like to do when it comes to debates. End them. The debate is over. It's settled. We're not going to hear any uh, countervailing opinions. And now we just move on to uh, institute uh, whatever uh, punishment under the guise of reform we deem appropriate and try to whipsaw people into acquiescence. Pat Cipollone wasn't having the overwhelming description to the case being presented by Adam Schiff and company. We hear all this talk about an overwhelming case, an overwhelming case that they're not even prepared today to stand up and make an opening argument about. That's because they have no case. Frankly, they have no charge. When you look at these articles of impeachment, they're not only ridiculous, they are dangerous to our republic. And why? First of all, the notion that invoking your constitutional rights to protect the executive branch that's been done by just about every president since George Washington, that that is obstruction. That is our patriotic duty, Mr. Schiff, particularly when confronted with a wholesale trampling of constitutional rights that I'm unfamiliar with in this country. Frankly, it's the kind of thing that our State Department would criticize if we see it in foreign countries. We've never seen anything like it. For more on this, as well as uh, what Trumpism, what form Trumpism may take after President Trump. We're pleased to be joined by Thomas Meany, who is a fellow at the Max Planck Society in Germany. He's a contributor to New Yorker magazine, London Review of Books, and Le Mans Diplomatique, and he has written on both of the topics I just mentioned. Thomas Meany, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So is uh, what Pat Cipollone saying there, is that uh, maybe one of the reasons, as you write at The Guardian, why all impeachment has done is to make Trump more popular than he was prior to impeachment? Because certainly his base has been with him since the uh, outset. So he must be generating at least converts of convenience through this process. I basically approach the impeachment in a in a practical manner. I mean, I consider myself an enemy of, of Donald Trump. But at the same time, I think that almost every post-war president has committed impeachable acts. And I think that one needs to carefully choose one's battles. Impeachment is always a political act. It's always been one and it is right now. And I just don't think that it's a particularly wise move to 
try to remove Trump by impeachment and to also attack him on the territory in which he's one of the most skilled fighters in American politics on television. So I just don't think it's a particularly wise move. So my advice for the Democrats was to either just try to do it as quickly as possible and get it done with as fast as you can or just not even do it. You, I would much prefer Trump to be impeached on other grounds like the, the Iran strike or something like that. But this just doesn't seem to me a particularly wise move for the Democrats to make. You compared uh, Nancy Pelosi to Theresa May in this process that both were sort of captive to events beyond their control, putting them in positions they didn't want to be in, obviously May with respect to Brexit and Pelosi with respect to this. That's right. I think that I am no fan of Nancy Pelosi, but one must acknowledge that she's an experienced politician. And you could sense in her early response to the impeachment inquiries that she knew that this was not going to be a very profitable road to go down. And I think that it would have been probably wise to yield to her instincts on this matter. By the way, the best book about impeachment that I've come across lately is by your fellow Chicagoan of yours, Richard Posner, the conservative sure. judge, who wrote a wonderful book about um, the Clinton impeachment. And so many people on the left, like me, you know, we welcome impeachment because we think it's going to weaken the imperial presidency or, or so forth. But um, but it turns out that the Clinton impeachment also helped. Clinton. You know, there's there's been a history of, of impeachments. Basically, the American people have a have a connection to the presidency and they don't like seeing presidents removed who they voted for. And so my view is that, you know, attack Trump in the Democratic arena of the election in November and focus all of your energies on that rather than trying to remove him by legal means, which everyone agrees will not happen. So uh, his remarks in Davos on Monday, where he uh, spoke of the blue collar boom that's going on. I mean, we have the data. We know that incomes are up uh, about $5,000 real dollars for the median uh, household income in this country. That's pretty good. And wages at the lower end are rising faster than wages at the higher end of the uh, socioeconomic distribution. So, I mean, there's, there seems to be actually some relative optimism by the supermajority of American voters about the economy at present and looking forward. And that was sort of the optimistic note that Trump's struck in Davos. I, I think that there's no question that the American economy is booming in a way, but it just depends sort of where you are there. I mean, if you have money in the S&P 500 or in the stock market, you're doing very well. You've had a tremendous return these past couple of years. You know, if you're a nurse in West Virginia or you're a teacher in California or something like that, you know, those are the people that seem to be collecting around Sanders. And I think that they're voting with a lot of, and it makes a lot of sense to me. So I wouldn't deny that that the stock market has done very, very well under Trump. And I think that Trump has always understood two things very well. He's understood that he needs to support the stock market. And he's also understood that he needs to be very careful about the judiciary and not to um, antagonize sort of mainstream Republicans um, about the judiciary. So I think that he's actually, I think that there is a bit of method to his, to, to what is sometimes perceived by liberals as his madness. Would you agree with observers like Selena Zito uh, that there's a, a bit of a, a realignment going on in American politics and uh, you have basically the elites and the wealthy and disproportionately the college educated that are moving left and uh, actually those that are have been traditionally the lower quintiles, a working class people, middle-income people, particularly those without a college degree that are moving right. I think that, you know, just the past two weeks have been really fascinating because one, I, th I think a lot of mist is cleared in the past few weeks. And it's become clear to me, at least, is that, and this is where some of these national conservative guys are interesting, is that, you know, the war in America is in the top 10%. It's not, you know, the top 1%, you know, who, who knows what they, who knows who they vote for. But the top 10%, you know, it's where do, where do those, where do those voters go? You know, some of them go for Trump, but increasingly they're collecting around Warren. And I think it's become clear in the past few weeks that Warren is a bit more of a Clintonite, you know, 
part two than many initially anticipated. And you can see it a little bit in her war against her, you know, this open flank that she's now started against Sanders. And I think that Sanders is a very unique character that only kind of comes around once every 50 years in American politics, you know, a sort of a genuine, actual revolutionary. So the, I think that the real interesting thing will be to watch what the liberal elite do. I can't really see them fully getting behind Sanders, but if Sanders somehow pulls out the nomination, then they kind of have to vote for him unless they want to give up all their cultural values. So that's going to be the interesting thing. And you can see it, you know, just the other day, right, with Hillary Clinton opening a front against Sanders as well. You know, they're, they're just as, they're very terrified of Sanders, I think. There's a piece by Walter Russell Mead in the journal about Davos and this sort of dovetails into our conversation. Mm -hmm. he, he writes about those that were present at that Swiss resort. As the millionaires and billionaires and Greta assemble in Davos this week to debate the future of the world, they face a crisis of relevance. What if, with all their confidence, experience, cosmopolitan vision, and yes, goodwill, the Davos Sea are merely passengers, comfortably ensconced in first-class seats, but on a train whose route they do not know and cannot control? Is that what's happening in elite circles, a crisis of relevance? Well, I don't think that elites are relevant. I think that elites are very relevant. And I think that what elites do with their money, what elites do in politics is very important. I think that Davos has always been a giant laundry washing machine, you know, to launder the morality of, of the sort of globalization um, faithful. You know, it's basically just been a kind of um, large advertising campaign you know, to make globalization seem a little bit better than it is, which, you know, many people have have seen through. When it comes to climate change, though, I mean, I'm very opposed to to Trump's sort of dismissal of that as a problem. So I think that it's a little bit beneath him to be, you know, picking on a, you know, a Swedish high school student. You well, know? well, I mean, I'm not sure he's picking on her or not. And, you know, yeah. and, and, and I mean, and the question about who's picking that fight uh, who and who's trying to elevate Greta and use her as a front for their interests. I mean, that's... Uh, that's a topic we'll get into another time, because I wanted to get to your the piece that you wrote for Harper's about Trumpism after Trump. And I wonder mm -hmm. what, whether that's in 2021 or 2025, what you think that looks like, and particularly as it pertains to the left, where all of that populist energy that's mainly behind Bernie, to some extent, Warren, where do mm -hmm. you think that mm -hmm. goes when Bernie exits the scene? Look, I think that that's a great question. When it comes to Trump, you know, you can see, you can already see that the ancien regime in the Republican Party, which in many ways is, is happy with Trump, you know, I mean, McConnell and these other guys, you know, they know that Trump does this amazing thing for them. I mean, he does manage to somehow keep the American capitalist elite class pretty happy with their with their stock market returns and so forth. But he also manages to sort of keep to bring in this this working class vote, which is kind of harder and harder for the Republicans to access. So Trump has manages a very complicated, very difficult acrobatic feat, which I think that the Republicans are grateful for. But then you see people like Mitt Romney, you know, who's starting to sound increasingly like Warren. You know, he sounds like the Financial Times op-ed page when he says, you know, well, maybe we should, you know, increase sort of ta capital gains taxes. You know, maybe we should sort of try to get this populist, you know, uh, mob off of our backs by giving in a little bit. Thomas Meany, he's a fellow at the Max Planck Society in Germany. He's a contributor to New Yorker, London Review of Books, Le Mans, Diplomatique. And uh, we will uh, tweet out at Dan Prof some of the pieces that we've been talking about. Thomas Meany, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, Joe Biden and the Biden family have had quite a week. You had the uh, excerpt from Peter Schweitzer's forthcoming book detailing some of the uh, apparent self-dealing of the Biden family, uh, leveraging uh, Joe Biden's position as vice president to enrich themselves. It's not just Hunter that's at issue, per the excerpt that was published in the New York Post, this forthcoming book that uh, strikes an eerie uh, resemblance to the Clinton cash book that was important during the 2016 election. You have Joe Biden making more curious statements, uh, seeming uh, unnecessary statements, going after video game developers as arrogant creeps who teach people how to kill and uh, also suggesting that at least as it pertains to people in this country illegally, he doesn't consider DUI a felony and the only basis on which it would be legitimate under a president Joe Biden to deport someone in this country illegally was if they had committed a felony. Of course, uh, state law with respect to DUI in just about every state certainly includes DUI. Uh, it, it includes the prospect of D, a DUI being a felony charge, aggravated DUI, uh, multiple DUIs. Uh, but the sort of nuance seems to be lost on Joe Biden, as does his position with respect to uh, major foreign policy decisions throughout his career, uh, perhaps most notably the 2003 invasion of Iraq. This has been a point of contention between Biden and Bernie in the debates, and it continues to be, including uh, this most recent op-ed at Salon.com by writer Sam Husseini, who is also a political activist and communications director for the Institute for Public Accuracy, And uh, he takes out after Joe Biden for being less than forthright about his uh, record as a United States senator and vice president uh, with respect to the war in Iraq. And we're pleased to be joined by Sam Husseini. Sam, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you, Dan. So um, you uh, contend that uh, Joe Biden, even when he says, uh, you know, he made a mistake, but he was misled, uh, as uh, many on the left who voted for the authorization, the use of force in Iraq suggest, you say that that uh, uh, admission of a mistake is not the complete story with respect to Biden and Iraq policy. It's way worse than that. Um, Biden, you know, Sanders' critique of Biden is very tepid. Um, he didn't just vote the wrong way. He was head of the Foreign Relations Committee during the buildup. He prevented weapons inspectors, Middle East scholars, from testifying at those hearings who would have um, exposed the duplicity around the U.S. case for war in Iraq. He has alternatively claimed to minimal media scrutiny. Um, During most of the debates, he has said something like, the moment that Bush went to war, I spoke up against it. This is what he's still saying uh, all these years later. And that's a lie. If you go back to the record, he continued to back the war. He co-sponsored a resolution getting behind Bush immediately after the bombing started. Um, He uh, continued to make statements uh, supporting Bush's uh, uh, invasion um, uh, months after at the Brookings Institute. And indeed, going back in time, he was pushing for regime change in a very active way um, in the late 1990s, even before 9-11. This was part of the um, uh, militaristic, um, hyper-interventionist uh, policy favored by a lot of uh, Washington, D.C. insiders. He, he cut down Scott Ritter when uh, Scott Ritter, who was being 
disagreements with him, but he was being a, a somewhat honest um, weapons inspector, and he could see that the U.S. policy wasn't about weapons inspections. It was about geopolitical goals. Well, and, and, and he, he yeah. started to speak up, and, and Biden was the one who cut him down you know, um, in 98. And, 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 you know, just, just on the, in this vein, I mean, Biden proposed a plan to divide up Iraq. Correct. So, so how are you going to divide that, that, up Iraq that, that, if you're not engaged? That, that Trump might be resurrecting now. So when everybody says Biden is Trump's opponent, I, I sometimes scratch my head at that. But I'm sorry, what was your question? Well, I mean, I, you know, how do you pretend that you were opposed to intervention sort of in principle, but uh, 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 buffaloed into it? Uh, but you have a plan to divide up Iraq. I mean, that, that's, that, that necessarily requires intervention. Right. His lies are so pernicious around Iraq it's like there's been minimal media scrutiny for him saying that he was opposed to the intervention. But, I mean, CNN just ran a piece, and they have him talking about, um, uh, you know, how Saddam, you know, wasn't in compliance with anything. Well, that, that's not true. Um, it's, it's, it's a really sad day when uh, a, a repressive dictator like Saddam Hussein is more of a truth teller than most of the U.S. establishment. That Iraq was in compliance. It was disclosing all kinds of things as the U.S. was threatening to invade. And whenever they did that, it was Joe Biden and Lieberman and a couple of other senators waving the flags along with the Bush administration, saying that this is all lies. What, what, what's your and, what, what's your handle on Biden? Because it's not like this is isolated. In, in 1979, he celebrated the Ayatollahs coming to power in Iran because he thought it would bring human events. He has alternatively said China is not a competitor for us to China is our number one competitor. Is this a guy who's just sort of a leaf in the wind in your estimation, going wherever sort of the what it's politically expedient to be in the moment? Or what's the basis of uh, all of these, this sort of graveyard of bad decisions? I, well, I don't think that they're necessarily bad decisions. I think that they serve insidious ends. I think that he wanted the Iraq war to happen. Um, uh, for geopolitical purposes, and then to wash his hands of it, uh, to blame it all on Bush. Uh, when he loaded the gun for Bush, he put the bullets in the gun, he helped get Bush drunk so that he'd pull the trigger. Um, but Biden has a, an amazing amount of culpability, probably more than any other Democrat, um, uh, for the Iraq war. Are, uh, certainly more than Hillary Clinton, who, you know, largely destroyed her campaign in uh, 2008. Are you um, are you uh, are you surprised, given sort of uh, Obama world's uh, arm's length approach to Joe Biden, that uh, therefore uh, that Obama's former secretary of state, John Kerry, is uh, serving as a surrogate for Biden? No, it makes perfect sense, because, you know, when, when I started writing about uh, Biden's record in detail was several months ago, and it looked like people were actually taking this guy seriously. I was like, the only one who might have, have a worse record is Kerry. I mean, Kerry, um, you know, uh, he lost to Bush on, uh, because he, you know, was talking out of both sides of his mouth on Iraq in right. 2004. Um, and uh, he similarly, you know, pretended, I questioned him in 2011, Kerry. And he similarly said, oh, I was, I was against the war the minute that it was launched, which is total baloney, that they all rallied around the flag, as he knew they would, um, and, and continued to support him. Kerry even outflanked Bush from the right, or from, you know, I, I don't want to defame the right here, they're principled anti-interventionist right-wingers like Ron Paul, but 
Um, Kerry actually, you know, wanted a more hawkish policy in 2004. At one point, as they, they were gearing up for the election, he was accusing Bush of planning a cut-and-run policy when the peace movement was pleading for Bush to get the hell out. So he was actually egging Bush on to be more um, aggressive in terms of Iraq at certain points in 2004. He is Sam Husseini. He's a writer, political activist, and comms director for the Institute for Public Accuracy. Check out his speech, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. Joe Biden won't tell the truth about his his Iraq war record, and he hasn't for years. That's at Salon.com. Sam, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Good to be with you, Dan. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Earlier in the show, we talked about this piece that Jason Riley wrote in the Wall Street Journal, distinguishing... uh, Black Democrat senators Booker and Harris, whose presidential campaigns fizzled to uh, a black Democrat senator named Barack Obama, who, of course, uh, his 2008 and 2012, but particularly 2008 presidential campaign, uh, put him in the White House. What was the difference? All three are black. So why weren't they received the same from a party and even more to the point, why wasn't somebody with as much promise as Kamala Harris, not seen as the underdog Barack Obama was against Hillary Clinton back in 2008, why wasn't there more support, more fanfare? She was seen as a potential frontrunner, particularly coming from California. Was it something in how they approached using the uh, playing identity politics? And that Riley, of course, argued that, yes, that's exactly it, that they uh, were, uh, to borrow from a Shelby Steele construct, where Obama was a bargain around race, uh, both Booker and Harris were challengers. They wanted to force race identity politics down the throats of primary voters, and that was rejected. What about when it comes to another form of identity politics that's, uh, of course, amok in the Democrat Socialist Party, and that's uh, gender identity? What, what happened to all of the women that were part of the field, not just Kamala Harris, but Gillibrand and uh, and where Elizabeth Warren's fallen out of favor. Amy Klobuchar is trying to climb into relevance. Elizabeth, uh, I should say, um, uh, you know, where are they? I mean, Tulsi Gabbard, obviously, it's a resource issue in part, you could argue. But perhaps there's something more, too. It's how these women, politicians, are prosecuting their form of identity politics, and, of course, Warren is sort of a category onto herself with that. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Amber Athey. She's the Daily Caller's White House correspondent and the host of the Unfit to Print podcast. She's also a former journalist for Campus Reform. Amber, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, what explains uh, the sort of lack of enthusiasm for the female candidates in the Democrat socialist field uh, really uh, up until present where the putative front runners at this point are two septuagenarian white guys named Biden and Sanders. I think the biggest problem in the Democratic Party in terms of electing women right now is that people feel really jaded about what happened in 2016. There was a lot of excitement about Hillary Clinton becoming the first female president 
among the Democratic Party. They thought she was going to coast into election against Trump. Obviously, that did not happen. Now, four years later, the Democrats are trying to reckon with the fact that they put up a candidate who was seemingly unelectable. Um, and now their main concern, and if you talk to voters in Iowa and New Hampshire who are, who are Democrats, even women, you'll hear the same thing. Their major concern right now is about beating Trump and not about electing someone who fits certain minority checkboxes. So their concern with the Klobuchar's, Warren's, and Harris's of the world is if we put them up in a general are they going to be able to beat Trump? And right now, the person who Democratic voters believe is most electable against Trump is still Joe Biden. Yeah, but, but one of the reasons they don't believe uh, some of these women are electable or any of them are electable is because of what, the three dimensions of these women be getting beyond their uh, sex for a second. As you write, Gillibrand was a flip flopper. Harris was a cop, is a cop uh, or was a cop as a G. A Warren is dishonest and Klobuchar is boring when she's not flinging binders at her interns. So, you know, there's something off-putting about these women, di uh, different things for different women. You're exactly right. These are characteristics of each of these women, whether it's with their personality or their ideology, that's separate from their gender that voters just don't like. Uh, and not being likable does not automatically mean that people are being sexist towards you. But that's what most of these candidates defer to when they find that they're not performing well in the polls. Warren and Klobuchar have both complained so far about alleged sexism in the Democratic primary. And it's a funny thing for them to say, because you have to ask yourself, does that mean that they're calling the average Democratic voter a sexist? Now, at this point, you see these Democratic women apparently calling their own voters sexist, as well as they often do to the Republican Party. So if they think the vast majority of the electorate is sexist, then why would a voter ever want to put them into office if that's the way that they look down on them. Yeah, I, it, it is rather, rather uh, curious, the approach, you know, so it's sort of like you have a very curious way of asking for help. You insult me. It's like I want you to vote for me, but I find you deplorable. I want you to vote for me, but I find you to be a misogynist right. or a racist. Moment all over again. Yeah. Um, uh, when we come back, Amber, I want to uh, pick up this discussion and uh, overlay the uh, recently concluded PHAT March, the 2020 edition. Uh, and uh, tackle a, f a few other topics. We're talking with Amber Athey. She is the Daily Caller's White House correspondent and the host of the Unfit to Print podcast. We'll be right back with more on The Dan Prof Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. We're back with Amber Athey. She's the Daily Caller's White House correspondent, the host of the Unfit to Print podcast. And we're talking about, uh, well, just the, the gender issue in the Democrat Socialist Party primary and uh, in our culture more generally. And so that also calls to mind uh, the uh, Women's March, PHAT March uh, over the weekend, where, the, of course, Trump was the dominant topic. Uh, some of the, uh, the, the viral anthems that were drummed out notwithstanding and, and uh, the, the press coverage of this was very interesting well it's a much smaller event but still very passionate um, what, what's your sense of the marketability of people that mostly elite white women who show up to marches like that suburban elite white women urban elite white women who show up to marches like that to um, 
well, like Ashley Judd, talk about their bloody jeans or like Madonna to tell people who don't agree with her to go blank themselves. It's really funny to look at the media coverage of this event because when this first took off after Trump's inauguration, there was wall-to-wall coverage on CNN, MSNBC, and of course the broadcast networks. This year, you didn't really hear much about the march at all. In fact, many people that I spoke to in D.C. didn't even know what was happening until all of a sudden they were hopping on the Metro Saturday morning and saw a bunch of those infamous pink hats. The problem that they have in this march and that they've always had in this march is that it's very vulgar, it's very negative, and it's really hard to promote that message to people as a message of taking back the White House in 2020. It's also, as you mentioned, filled with middle-aged white women. It's sort of that fake, woke feminism that's taken over the Democratic Party with identity politics. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is someone who kind of embraces that same idea with her attacks on Bernie Sanders, for example, claiming that he secretly told her that she could never win the presidency because she's a woman attacking their own, the infighting in the Democratic Party. These are all things that voters who actually want to win in 2020 would very much like to leave in the past. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that there is more interesting and talented women within Republican ranks that are being talked about seriously as presidential timber, like, for example, but not limited to Nikki Haley, than there are uh, uh, in the Democrat ranks, even with all of these female candidates that started this campaign. And not to mention the fact that the Republican women face much greater scrutiny than the Democratic women. The Democratic women's flaws have been explained away as uh, being those types of attacks are explained away as being sexist. You look at Republican women like Nikki Haley or Elise Stefanik, who's become a rising star because of her role in the impeachment trial defending President Donald Trump. They are eviscerated in the media for supporting the president or for even just being a Republican. They've had a lot more practice defending themselves against those kinds of attacks, which will make them much more effective when it comes time to run for reelection. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a really good point. Is you know they uh, the, the the women on the left sort of get coddled because they have cheerleaders in the D.C. press corps, whereas uh, any conservative or Republican office holder or activist is you know the first question is well why are you a traitor to your gender? So I mean you sort of get right. used to you know uh, the brutality of uh, of the political treatment if you're not a fellow traveler to the press corps. Right, and this is a point that I make in my piece as well which is when any of these Democratic women were to get to a general, you know, provided they do win the nomination, how are they going to stack up against Trump in the debate? If Warren can't handle being attacked by Bernie for not saying how she's going to pay for Medicare for all, or Klobuchar hasn't really answered for her alleged abuse of her staff, when those issues come up on a debate stage with Trump, who is not going to hold anything back, they better be ready for that. And so far, it does not seem like they are either willing or able to answer for their own faults. Last hour uh, on our show, I was talking about uh, the Hillary Clinton interview by The Hollywood Reporter in advance of this Hulu series about Hillary in 2016, because, you know, it's 2016 forever in Hillary world. And so her antagonism towards Bernie and but just also her continued presence and how that perhaps prevents other women on the left from uh, rising and, and creating any profile, because, of course, any pronouncement that Hillary makes on virtually any topic, the press is going to cover. And frankly, Hollywood is still making documentary series about her. So, I mean, what does that say? Right. It still makes Hillary seem like she is the de facto leader of the female Democrats. And anyone in the Democratic Party who is a decent strategist will tell you that that is the worst PR you could ask for because Hillary is highly unlikable. She obviously did not do well in 2016. Everyone in the Democratic Party would love to just see her go away. And then especially when you look at the way that she's 
explained how she lost 2016. Again, it's this claim that the voters did not elect her because they are sexist. That is the type of thing that holds women back because they're unable to try to make themselves better. Instead, they just blame all of their failures on other people's bigotry. Yeah, we had this uh, problem. I mean, I'm longtime Politico in Illinois, and we had this problem for a generation between the 90s and, and into the 2000s where former Governor Jim Edgar was seen as like the candidate that we need to get to run again for every available statewide office that was open. You know, every time uh, there was an opportunity, whether it was to run for uh, to nominate a, a governor, to nominate somebody for U.S. Senate, it was, well, was Jim Edgar interested? And he would play this sort of reluctant prom date game. And it kept so many other people on the sideline. And it, the other effect it had is it said uh, it pushed people out because they just said, well, the hell with this. I, I'm not going to be part of a, a party that is playing this wait your turn game. And we all have to put everything on hold waiting for Jim Edgar to make a decision on what he wants to do. And it seems to me that that's sort of the dynamic with the Democrats right now in so many ways, particularly with young female candidates or erstwhile political leaders, that everything is is uh, on hold until Hillary Clinton once and for all leaves the scene. Yeah, she's been given a lot of leeway to continue to try to lead the Democratic Party because she was seen as next in line. And this has been a tradition in the Democratic Party. Uh, Barack Obama actually kind of broke that tradition back in uh, 20, uh, 2008, for example. And Hillary was actually supposed to be the person then, but right. she didn't perform very well in the primary. Obama was able to unseat her. He was just a young senator at the time. And now you have these uh, young superstars in the Democratic Party. I think Tulsi Gabbard is a great example of someone who does not fit this uh, middle-aged Democratic woman stereotype. She's an independent thinker. She's willing to go after her own party when necessary. Um, she has this very broad appeal to both Republicans and Democrats, and she's young. And the Democratic Party refuses, of course, to put her up because either they don't think she's woke enough or because they she has gone after Hillary, who was, of course, still hanging around for her involvement in things like the Iraq War. And so they're really kneecapping their own future by refusing to give people like Tulsi Gabbard a voice. Yeah, well, not to mention, what, what, what did she get for her independent thinking and disagreeing with Hillary? She got uh, the accusation that she's a Russian agent. Right. And now she's actually suing Hillary for defamation. Well, that should be fun. Uh, so they're still trying to figure it out. That's just more evidence of, uh, of uh, that thesis. She is Amber Athey. She's Daily Caller's White House correspondent and the host of the Unfit to Print podcast. Amber, thanks for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. takes us to King's University College uh, up in Strange Brewland, north of the border. The uh, movie Unplanned, I'm sure many of you have heard about it. This is the story of Abby Johnson, how she went from being the director of a Texas Planned Parenthood Center to a pro-life activist. Um, Unplanned is her story, and it uh, actually got pleasantly surprising distribution around North America in terms of... uh, movie theaters. So King's University College in Canada is a Catholic college. Forty-four professors at King's 
sent a letter demanding the school apologize for screening unplanned on campus. Remarkable. The demand for an apology came in a letter from faculty members uh, addressed to what is effectively the college's president. Described the faculty called the Fuhrer and Fear expressed by the school community over the fact that the prole film was screened on campus. The public endorsement of an anti-abortion stance at King University's college by the director of campus ministry is of great concern to the viability of our institution as we work to recruit and maintain excellent students, staff, and faculty. In response, the response is almost as disturbing as the letter. The school does not have an official position on abortion. Well, the Catholic Church does. This is a Catholic institution. The president of the university makes it clear that the official position is indifferent and ultimately, by definition, not supportive of the pro-life cause. So on the one hand, you have people who think that uh, showing something on campus is an endorsement, as if you can't show things that are controversial and would have a multitude of opinions or multitude of reactions about them. You can only show movies on campus that what reach a certain popular threshold. I mean, it speaks to the college campus as the totalitarian re-education center it is, whether uh, in Canada or so many here. By the way, on the issue, you think it would have prompted a discussion, perhaps a discussion uh, led by Stephen Jacobs, Ph.D. student at uh, University of Chicago, who uh, has really put the pro-choice movement in a bit of a pickle. This thesis that he's done and some of the results of which he published in Quillette last year, Quillette.com. He uh, just asked a bunch of biologists around the country, when does life begin? Surveyed professors in the biology departments of more than a more than a thousand institutions around the world. I found 5,337 biologists affirmed that a human's life begins at fertilization. That was 96% of all respondents. 240 rejected the view. The majority of the sample identified as liberal, pro-choice, and non-religious. 96% of about 6,000 biologists the world over, biology departments and universities, 96% human life begins at fertilization. That's the scientific fact. The majority, 90%, identify as liberal. 85% identified as pro-choice. 68% identified as non-religious. In the case of the Americans, uh, biologists who express party preference, 92% identified as Democrat. You can only keep the truth from people for so long. I, I think their days are numbered. This is the Dan Prop Show. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.